welcome to the next episode of Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford, where we discuss all things college admissions. Joel and I have been having conversations about college admissions for years, and now we bring those to you. Our goal is to provide information to you, the listener, about the world of college admissions, the processes involved, and the current issues that are a part of the journey to post-secondary education. I'm Chris Reeves, independent college counselor, and I'm here with Joel Ford, school counselor at Connor High School in Hebron, Kentucky. Our producer is Mike Piergowski, English teacher and 2023 state champion tennis coach at Indian Hill High School in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mr. Ford, how are you today, sir? Well, I will, I'll tell you, as of this recording, we are in early November, so and, and counselors know this term, Sucktober is over. Yeah, it is, baby. Uh, we passed that November 1 deadline. I know December 1 is coming up, which is which is a big deadline for a lot of schools in our area. But we got past the first one. Um, I, I sat there on November 2nd and went, wow, now what? Um, you know, and, and, and I've told you this, I got past the PSAT, the digital version, Um if you, if you want to talk about it, contact the, us because there's the, plenty uh, to talk about on that one. Sure. Um, like, the, I don't know, the nationwide revolt against College Board that's about to happen because everyone's oh, tired of how that's going. Well, maybe that's a whole other episode, Joel. Right. But how are you, sir? Oh, I'm great. Buckeyes got a big win yesterday. Uh, you know, we were down down at half, which was the first time this season we were losing at halftime to a 6-2 and two Rutgers team, but pulled the pulled the win out big second half. So, you know, I guess, I guess if that's all it takes for me to have a good week, I guess, I guess that's good. Also, no. And maybe, maybe this shows that I haven't been quite as busy in the last couple of days. I finished armor of light by Ken Follett this week. Um, it's only 737 pages, but I knocked it out in about five days. So. I mean, that's like a novella for Ken Follett. Right. Yeah. It felt like a short story. Yeah. And now you're ready for him to write book six. Yeah, hurry up. Come on. Hurry Only up. Two more, get two on. more years and you can get the sixth book in. The so series. we probably need to get a look back toward college. Okay. Um, but yes. today's episode is going to be one of the more timely and important episodes we've done in our four plus years because it involves one of the biggest changes to the college admissions process in years. Um, our guest told you, uh, Chris, that this is a once in a generation change. Yep. Last meeting. Um, so today we're going to try and tackle the changes that are happening with the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Um, our guest today has been on top of this from the beginning. And between the three of us, we're going to try and tell you what we know, what we still don't know, and what may still be to come even after we get to the FAFSA. Um, so take what you thought you knew about the FAFSA, chuck it out the window uh, because it's new. And we'll see about the improved part. I mean, Joel, isn't is it money? Is it money for college where the rubber meets the road? You know, because yeah. we, we do a lot of work on helping kids get in and helping them understand where they want to be and what their best fit is. But you know, come come July, what I tell my students is they're going to send a bill. Like you're gonna you're gonna get a bill. Like you're gonna have to pay for it. So ultimately, college choice oftentimes, and in, you know, we have very few students we work with where money is no object, and that does happen. Right. But yeah, it's where the rubber meets the road. This is right. this is a super important episode. Even as much as we joke around and have fun, and we're about to have a little more fun, we we do take it seriously. And, right. I and mean, I, do, I don't know how many times I tell kids it's got to be the right fit at the right price. Right. You know. So, but before we get into that, I'd like to take a moment to talk about college football once again, and the upcoming bowl season in a few short weeks. Um. I've previously mentioned on this podcast, I think about half of the bowl games, if not more, should be completely eliminated uh, because they don't have a point. You're so you're so grumpy about this. I, I Oh, that drives me nuts. Like, I love college football, and I hate the bowl season for the bowls that, that don't lead to any type of championship. Most of us don't even remember a month later who won what bowl unless maybe it's our alma mater. And in, you know, wait, in my wait, wait. case, Western Kentucky, I know we won the Bahamas bowl and, and the Boca Raton bowl. And you know what, but See, really who cares when those, when those students got to participate with it. But before, before we go any further, since I, I see where this is going, um, 
we need to we need to bring our guest in now because you know we'll we'll formally introduce him soon. But man, we need a man on this one because I know he's gonna enjoy it. Ed Recker, my my friend, Ohio State fan and and MAC conference supporter. We hope it's okay to bring you in now. Absolutely. So all right. So, well, okay. So now you and I can both listen to Joel rant. Let's go. Okay. So so this past week, I think we've entered a new low. Um, I was I was reading an article and I saw an article about the Cure Bowl. The Cure Bowl currently features teams from the American Athletic Conference and the Sun Belt Conference. Hmm. Okay. The Cure Bowl is we, now we, the we, avocados. We need, we need, Joel, we need what? listeners. We need listeners. What are you okay. doing? Okay. Okay. <laughs> but the, but the Cure Bowl is now the avocados from Mexico Cure Bowl. Hmm. Are avocados from Mexico a brand, or did we just find a random piece? Did we find a random piece of food and say, "Here's the sponsor"? (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah, we did. That's what we did. Okay, so so that inspired me to for us to take a moment and let's remember some of those classic food sponsored bowl games, current and former, that are close to our hearts. Right. That I know, we just remember with with a high level of passion, like that all time classic, the Beef O'Brady's Bowl. <laughs> nothing says a championship like pub food. You the, know what? I, beef O'Brady's is good. The, the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. You know that's the one where the coach gets like French fries dumped on him at the end. <laughs> Are you serious? The 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 craft fight hunger bowl. See, you can't make fun of that. A good cause, but I just imagine like like plastic wrapped slices of processed cheese given out to the winning team. <laughs> the Outback Bowl. Nice They're probably playing for the Bloomin' Onion. Mm. Yeah. The the Chick Fil A. Yeah, yeah very tasty. The Chick Fil A Bowl, which. They named that from the Peach Bowl, but then now it's the Peach Bowl again. So actually, I think it's the Chick Fil A Peach Bowl. Is it played in Atlanta? Yeah, it's played in Atlanta. See, it's, at least it's got some sponsorship. At least you know where it's at. Yeah, yeah. The, the Little Caesars Pizza Bowl, which I think was somewhere in Florida. This year, we're going to have the Pop Tarts Bowl. That's a good one. The, the trophy is going to be a toaster with the Pop-Tart coming out. Did you, are you making that up? Or is yes, that totally. Oh, okay. I believed you. Like, it could be like... <laughs> That's the point! The, the I, I was with you. Now, yeah. the Pop-Tarts Bowl was the Cheez-It Bowl, which we'll, we'll get back to Cheez-Its here in a minute. Okay. We've got the Duke's Mayo Bowl. Dude, best mayo. Best mayo. I've never had it. But I'm imagining the coach getting dumped with, like, a, a bucket of mayo... For winning the game. Why, why, does, why does the coach have to get dumped with the item of the bowl in your mind? Like every time. I, I don't know. All right. I actually think that one happens. And I mean, I, I'm I'm with you, Chris. I, I love me some mayo, but oh my goodness, that just sounds awful. That, yeah, that'll never come out. The, the Fiesta Bowl has had two sponsors of food-related items. The Tostitos Fiesta Bowl, which, you know, that's been quite a while. But apparently, at some point, it was also the Sunkissed Fiesta Bowl. Can't say I remember that. Now back to the Cheez It Bowl. Okay. The Cheez It Bowl that is now the Pop Tarts Bowl. So now Cheez It's is sponsoring the Cheez It Citrus Bowl, which so actually wait, the started. Bowl, at, the Cheez It Citrus Bowl is not part of the history of the the Cheez It Bowl. Right. So Cheez which we Pop yesterday. Yesterday, we got into a lengthy discussion on, um, I mean, about 45 minutes of our lives, we can't get back. Okay. But, you know, the Cheez-It Citrus Bowl started as the Tangerine Bowl. So, I guess the winning team gets a piece of fruit and some Cheez-Its. Thanks for playing. We had the Domino's Pizza Copper Bowl, which became the Buffalo Wild Wings Bowl. Now I'm I'm a fan of hot wings so and yeah. buffalo wings so uh, you know I'm okay with that one. The Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, the Culligan Holiday Bowl. Are are you familiar with Culligan? 
yeah, water softeners. So we're playing for water. All right. The winning team gets a bottle of water. The <laughs> very ConAgra clean, Foods very, Hawaii Very Bowl. clean, very clean reverse osmosis water or something, though. <laughs> the, the, the ConAgra Foods Hawaii Bowl, the Popeye's Bahamas Bowl, mm. Louisiana Cajun Chicken in the Bahamas, the the Cherubundi Boca Raton Bowl. I had to look, I had to remember look back up and remember what Cherubundi was. So that's a tart cherry juice beverage brand from Boulder, Colorado. Okay, sponsoring a bowl in Boca Raton, Florida. Makes sense. All the way from Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Frisco Bowl. I, and then, as more I was water. more water's was, coming up, right? And I didn't even realize there were bowl games at lower levels. So apparently, oh. there has there has been a Division Two Mineral Water Bowl, the Division Three Culver's Isthmus Bowl. It, it it makes me think we're playing a game of risk on that one. Yeah, um, Kamchatka, <laughs> Yakutsk. Yeah. Uh, the Division Three Cousins Subs Lakefront Bowl. And then there's one that's been proposed. The Chocolate Bowl. Oh, yeah. Which would be in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And certainly, certainly you're going to get, like, chocolate dumped on you. I, 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 I imagine this huge chocolate fountain just on the other side of the goalposts, you know. <laughs> You score, grab a strawberry, you know, whatever. And, and these bowls don't even include the traditional bowls of food. The peach, the citrus, the sugar, the orange, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I guess avocados from Mexico, welcome to the party. You, there you, you go. You've That's made it. That's the whole point. That's the whole you've point. You've made it. it. All right. Um, I'm sure by the time we fall in love with you, you'll be replaced by waffles from Belgium, even though we know that's not really true. How about muffins from England? Fries from France? How about the poutine bowl? Yeah, I'll do that. Anything. Let's play one in Canada. Let's Anything. have some poutine. Uh, honestly, where does it stop, Chris Reeves? These, these bowls are pointless. All I'll right? tell you, where, I'll tell you know where it stops right now. Let, let's let the madness in. It stops right now. Ugh. Oh man! So, do you feel better now, though, after the morning rant? Well, you know, listeners, bowl season starts like December fifteenth, so just wait for the first food bowl and cheer on your team. I guess you know, maybe the, the key in the whole point is to just to align your meals that day with the bowl you're going to watch. <laughs> so, cheese it's and citrus fruit, January yeah. one, right. My nine-year-old would be all about that. Let's just be real. And probably most college students. Uh, yes. Wait, wait, wait for up. the ramen bowl. <laughs> yeah, the... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, as long as my team is playing in one of the bigger bowls, I'll be happy. So, you know. That's my point exactly, Mr. Reeves. I know it is. All right, everyone, remember – Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford as part of the NACAC Podcast Network, where you can find a variety of podcasts centered around various aspects of the world of college admissions. Just Google NACAC Podcast Network, and the first link will take you to a variety of podcasts, including ours, that you may want to listen to after you've listened to this one, of course. So with that, let's take a break. When we come back, let's get into the new FAFSA. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. So listeners, if you listened to our special edition episode number 32, one of the three topics we introduced in that episode was the change coming to the FAFSA, everyone's favorite financial aid form. Under the FAFSA Simplification Act passed by Congress, major changes are coming from the number of questions asked, how financial need is calculated, 
let's just say there's plenty for us to discuss. So as always, we need someone who is well-versed in the topic of the day. And listeners, you've already met him a little bit earlier. But Chris, why don't you do the formal honors? I'd love to. I'd love to. Our guest today is Ed Recker, Director, High School Relationship Management with Sally May, where he's been since May 2019. Prior to that, he was a consultant with Ruffalo Noel Levitz, served as Associate Director, then Director of Financial Aid, and then VP for Enrollment Management at the University of Findlay in Ohio. Prior to that, he served in similar positions at Terra State Community College, and he started off as a student loan specialist and then scholarships and grants coordinator for Bowling Green State University. He has a master's in education degree in higher education management from the University of Toledo, as well as a bachelor's degree in business administration, also from the University of Toledo. Ed is a staunch supporter of the Mid-American Conference, Go Mac, and he is a listener to the Get Schooled podcast. Ed, now you are a guest of the Get Schooled podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure and an honor. Well, we certainly are happy to have you. And just before recording, it's 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 always always fun to just talk to you. You and I met not too long ago. Um, I don't even maybe it was uh, over a year at this point. But um, as as part of the Sally May Advisory Committee, and I, I certainly enjoy my my time on on the committee. I always. I always like watching how you navigate everything and run the meetings and just do a great job just being so positive all the time and, and eliciting or soliciting and eliciting, I suppose, everyone's input to uh, just to just to get the opinions of stakeholders out there as you as you guys work as a company to, to do to do great things. But uh, Joel, Joel is usually a little better here at getting us going on discussions and important things. So I'll, I'll hand it over to him. I, I do want to say I, I'm impressed with your turn of phrase there, soliciting and eliciting. That was pretty good. Thank you. I, and I'm not I'm being serious. So. All right, cool. Yeah. But but let's start with an easy one. Um, tell us about the change in the length of the FAFSA. What's what's the reasoning for it? And is it really shorter or are we, you know, what's the format look like? Sure. So so I would say. You know, the reason for the shortening and and we're going to get a little bit of a of history here. So uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Lamar Alexander. So he was a longtime senator, I believe, from the great state of Tennessee. He would famously go on the floor of Congress with the old FAFSA form, the paper form. And he would, you know, when we had the old dot matrix printers that were all, you know, the pages were perforated, he would print one out and then famously just allow it to accordion out and tell folks, this is too long, this is too hard for families. So this was, this was kind of his swan song. He had been working towards this for years and years and years and years. And finally, I believe it was on his last day in Congress, they passed the FAFSA Simplification Act. So what that really did was, and Joel, to your point, it did shorten the FAFSA. So historically, and it's always hard to say exactly how how long the FAFSA is because uh, the Department of Education leverages skip logic. So for some students, it would be shorter than for others. But using a rough estimate, it was about 100 questions. With the new FAFSA, or as the Department of Ed is calling it, the better FAFSA, it has been shortened to approximately 50 questions. So, so it is definitely shorter. Now I will say that they do take some small liberties with that. So in the past, say first and last name were one question, uh, and then it would ask you for your address. That was another question. So now they kind of lump things together to say demographic information, and that includes name, address, phone number, email address, things like that. But the reality of it is, is that it truly is going to be a shorter experience for students and families. So with that, um, you know, you meant you just mentioned demographics. So I know part of the better FAFSA, um, they've eliminated certain questions. So they've eliminated the, the selective service requirement. They've added questions about race, ethnicity, gender, how, how will those changes, if at all, impact students and parents? 
So the short answer is it's really not going to impact students and parents much, if at all. So I do want to preface that by saying, gang, uh, registering for the selective service, that is still a law that is still required for all males 18 and older. The, the big change with the FAFSA when it comes to that selective service question is it's no longer required for federal student aid. Students don't have to uh, be registered in order to be eligible for federal student aid. That used to that used to be a uh, requirement. So they've removed that. But beyond that, it really is just time. Uh, you know, the time it takes to to fill out those questions on the FAFSA. The U.S. Department of Education has been very clear that these questions are for informational uh, purposes only on their side of the house. They want to know who's filling out the FAFSA, what, you know, what those, uh, what their demographic backgrounds look like. It will not impact their eligibility. So keep that in mind. You know, it's just, it's just questions to learn more about the applicants. It's not going to have any impact on aid eligibility. Do, do you think they'll be able to take some of that information and maybe that will impact different pro grant loan programs in the future for different groups? I mean, potentially, I, I think that that could definitely be part of it. You know, the more information we have about, about students who are applying, I think the better they can hone in on, on certain programs, potential programs, things of that nature. You know, I, I always say that, the better informed we are, the better off we are. And I think that's really at the core of this is the Department of Ed is just, just trying to be better informed about who's filling out the FAFSA. Uh, and then that can help inform decisions in the future. Do you do you feel like that the true the true purpose, going back to the senator in, in Tennessee to to this revision, is is that filling out the FAFSA is the best way to, to have access to higher education. And the more people who fill it out, the more people who could potentially afford to go to college. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that and that statement, Chris. I mean, we've, we've talked about when I say we, Sally Mae, but also I would say financial aid, uh, the financial aid industry as a whole have talked so often about just complete the FAFSA. Uh, Right. Every year, millions and millions of dollars are left on the table by students and families because they just don't fill it out. Uh, the National College Attainment Network, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but they do a fantastic report every year on the literally millions of dollars in free money that is left on the table by by students who just don't bother to fill out the FAFSA. So I think the ultimate goal is we shorten the FAFSA, we make it simpler we increase access for students and families and hopefully, you know, open that door to free money for folks who previously wouldn't have considered it. And I, I think I can speak for Joel and say it this way, like, like we, we at Get Schooled really, really feel that anytime something is more complicated, there are fewer, it, it makes it harder for people, especially who don't have resources and, and anything that is less complicated is, is better for everyone. Um, well, better for people who don't have resources, I suppose. And we, I mean, I, we'll see how this kind of pans out as we talk, but the, I, I appreciate the sentiment and, and the, the purpose behind it. Now, as, as with anything, it has to work in practicality. And, you know, there are, I don't know how to put it except bluntly, but there are kind of winners and losers in this situation. There are situations where more aid would be given, but also situations where less aid would be given when, when we make a revision like this. So I want to get into um, the, one of the biggest changes of the FAFSA period, which is which is eliminating the EFC. And most people, I think most listeners would know that, that what that means. But the expected family contribution will be gone. Now we have the SAI, Student Aid Index, which is terminology but, but can you give us a sense of what the essay is, how it's calculated, and, and maybe who those, again, I, it's my fault for calling it like winners and losers. I shouldn't do that. But, but who, who it helps and who it hurts in certain situations. That's, that's a big stacked question, but hopefully we've given you a little time to prepare so you're kind of ready for it. I'll do my best and feel okay. free to, uh, if I miss anything, feel free to jump in and say, hey, you, you, didn't, you didn't answer this part. So, so. Student Aid Index, SAI, 
that is really that that change in the naming convention from expected family contribution or EFC to student aid index, SAI, uh, in a lot of ways, it truly was just a change in naming convention. So at its core, both of those numbers were meant to be, in the case of EFC, was meant to be an SAI. It is meant to be just an index number that's used to help the Department of Ed, colleges and universities, state agencies, really anyone who leverages that FAFSA information, it's going to help them determine what types and how much aid a student is eligible for. I think the name itself, expected family contribution, really tripped folks up. And and I experienced this personally when I was on campus. People would see that number and they would think, this is my bill. No, it's not your bill. Is this what I'm expected to pay out of pocket? I can't pay that out of pocket. No, that's not what that's meant to be. It's meant to be an index number that helps gauge what types of aid and how much aid uh, folks are eligible for. So so that's really at its core. Uh, I think it was a really smart move by the Department of Education to change that because there was so much confusion around the EFC. Now, when we start talking about, and, and Joel, I'm, I'm sorry, Chris, I'm using your uh, language here. Winners yeah, my language, losers. not yours. Uh, yeah, I get Yes, it. not my language. Uh, you know, I think the vast majority of students really won't see a measurable change when it comes okay. to the difference. Because when we, you know, when we pop the hood and we look at really what that methodology is, and gang, trust me when I say this, you do not want me to go through a federal methodology. We, you know, we want this podcast to be fun and engaging, and that will put you to <laughs> sleep immediately. Um, but a lot of those elements are still the same. They've stayed consistent. And because of that, the vast majority of students aren't going to see a big change. Now, with that being said, some will. And, you know, one of those biggest things, there are two really big elements that that are taken into consideration where certain groups will see a change in that index number, in this case, SAI. Those are uh, students who have siblings in college, so at the same time, so multiple kids in college at the same time, as well as folks who are either um, small business owners or they own a family farm. So those two groups potentially will see a bigger change in that index number, which will potentially impact uh, their aid eligibility moving forward. In, in all of your trainings, the biggest, I mean, we both of those make, uh, like have impact in, in the, the students Joel and I work with. In any of your trainings or meetings with the Department of Ed, has, has there been a discussion as to, as to why they removed the multiple siblings in college kind of like benefit, I suppose, because it used to just split in half, right? The method, the, the mathematical formula was if your family had an EFC of, of $20,000, but then all of a sudden you had a freshman in college and a senior in college that each one got a 10, like it just got just basically split down the middle. Um, do you, why did they remove that? So the reason why, I'll be honest, uh, Chris, I've I've done a lot of research in the, on this, and I haven't been able to find anything directly from the Department of Ed okay. in right. terms of of why. Now, with that being said, there are other folks that have chimed in on it. So uh, Justin Drager, who's who's the head of uh, the National Association for Student Financial Aid Administrators, or NASFA. Um, he was quoted to say that this treats families in similar circumstances more equitably. So, so essentially, if you had someone who the kids are five years apart versus two years apart, um, it's going to treat them more equitably, more, more similar than not. Uh, similarly, uh, there are other folks who have chimed in and talked about it being a kind of a timing thing. So Sandy Baum with the Urban Institute uh, she had mentioned that, that it's a spacing thing about how far or how close the students are spaced out in terms of age. So this allows for the new formula just to be more equitable, regardless of the spacing uh, between in age between children. Well, there's some, there's some logic behind that. I mean, if we think about so, uh, somebody who has four kids and it doesn't matter how far apart those four kids are. So ultimately, if their goal is to send all four kids to college, we're going to use really round numbers. 
the there, it's gonna let's say it's I don't know let's say it's fifty thousand dollars a kid to go for four years so that's two hundred thousand dollar bill that family's gonna get so if a family has those four kids closer together should they get more benefit financial aid wise than the family who has those kids four kids further apart and that's what they're saying I think right that that, that it, like in total the aid you're ultimately given is now removed from timing and when those when those when those children go to college correct that's in a nutshell you you've done a much better job of of uh, summarizing that than i but yes that's exactly what they're saying and i'm not i'm not necessarily agreeing with one side or the other but but again here at get schooled we like to see all sides of the argument and it's very easy to just like stomp our feet and throw our hands up and down and say that's not fair you know because it used to be a certain way but I, I can see the logic behind behind that math in when looking at the the lifespan of sending all of your children to college to the best of your ability. So I, I want to ask a clarifying question because I'm still struggling with this one a little bit. And when Chris and I went to, to NACAC, I sat in on probably, I think, two different FAFSA sessions with the Department of Ed. So one thing I, I caught with the SAI is that you, now you can actually have a negative SAI. Um, what does that even mean? And they made the comment like colleges will probably just treat it as a zero um, when they're calculating. How do you get a negative SAI? And what's the point then if we're just going to call it zero? Right. So so I think that's a great call out. And it is one of those that especially when for years that, you know, that scale has started at zero. We right. go down to a negative and, and they're saying the lowest it will go is negative fifteen hundred. So what does that mean? So. Realistically, the Department of Ed has said that and to your point, Joel, a negative fifteen hundred, at least for things like Pell Grant, federal Pell Grant eligibility, they're going to be treated the same as a zero EFC. So those folks aren't going to at least initially get more aid, or they're not going to be eligible for additional aid above and beyond what we would call cost of attendance. Where that negative number really comes into play is, and again, popping on, popping the hood and looking under and looking at the federal methodology, you know, not all zero EFCs in the past were created equal. It, you could have a very wide range, even within that zero EFC as to, and, and I hate to say it this way, but, but you know, how, how much need someone needs. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it, mm -hmm. but, but the reality of it is, is that there, there is a gap. There is a difference between various zero EFCs. Once we start dropping into the negatives, at that point, that allows colleges and universities to really identify students with the highest need. There are some things that the colleges and universities can then do for them. The Department of Ed might not necessarily be able to jump in and say, we're going to give you extra Pell Grant. But with colleges and universities, they can they can really identify and identify these folks and make sure that they're getting additional programming, uh, potentially additional institutional aid. And there are some federal aid programs, such as the Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant, or SEOG, federal work study that are referred to as campus-based funds. Now, those are finite funds, uh, and those are funds that each school has only a certain dollar amount to give out. But maybe a school really identifies those folks with a negative EFC, or, oh my goodness, negative SAI. See, still mm -hmm. new, still doing it. Right. Negative SAI. And saying, you know what, we're going to give those students a little bit more SEOG. We're going to give them a little bit more work study or we're going to, you know, we're going to pull money out of our own coffers and give them a little more institutional aid to help them out. Or, or at least first priority. Correct. Okay. Can we jump, can we jump back real quick just for listeners and maybe for us to the, to the small business family farm? Can we dig into that just a little bit as far as what the, what the change is? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, small businesses, and those would be that was defined uh, by the Department of Ed as 99 employees or fewer. So realistically, 99 employees, that could be a kind of big small business, yeah. or folks who operated a family farm. So 
the Department of Ed's definition was family farm is a farm in which the family owns, lives on, and works. They work that ground. So I live in farm farm country. I know all about this. In the past, those were all sheltered. You didn't have to report any of the assets associated with either of those two entities, a small business or a family farm. Now the Department of Education has pivoted and said, uh, we need to know the adjusted net worth of that small business or that family farm. And that that goes into the calculation now, the, the SAI calculation. So a piece of that is, and folks usually follow up and say, adjusted net worth. What What is that? So right. the good news is, is that they don't have to calculate the adjusted part, but they do have to know what the net worth of that small business or that family farm is. And then that gets reported on the FAFSA. You don't know how much that plays into the formula, how much it would be, how much a, like, like how much the SAI would go up as a result of that, or do you? It's again, we're, we're popping the hood there and we're, we're really getting into the nitty gritty. I can tell you that it's a sliding scale. So depending on how much, how much that business or family farm is worth, that net worth is, uh, the more it's going to impact. Uh, so if you've, you know, if you've got either or that has millions and millions in assets, obviously that's going to impact you more than if you run a small business out of your home and you really have little to no assets. So, yeah, I wonder, I mean, and, and I mean, I, I hate to suggest this, I suppose, but I'm about when, when you say that, you know, you're about to suggest something. I mean, I, I wonder if the government felt that people were gaming it too much and that people knew that knew the, knew the laws so much that they were able to have extremely profitable businesses that didn't count for anything when it came to FAFSA. I don't know. You know, I do, I do think that's fair, Chris. Uh, you know, I will, I will speak to schools, uh, one is one in particular, which will remain nameless, but speaking to their aid director within the past two, three years, this was a very prominent uh, institution that they leveraged the CSS profile. And I know we're, we're not talking about profile, but right. for those who aren't familiar with it, this is a supplemental aid application that really goes deeper than the FAFSA. And this particular aid director was telling me that, hey, we've got people here that based on exactly what you were saying, that are actually federal Pell Grant eligible, but their CSS profile number is through the roof because they were a small business owner or they they owned a very large family farm. So again, I, I think, you know, I hate to deal in absolutes. I really don't like to do so, but your point is is a good one where I think there were folks that that knew how to really leverage the the laws and the rules in place to be able to maximize their own aid eligibility. Sure. And this and, is, I mean, this is the part of yeah, if it's legal, it's Correct. legal, and it's not. Gaming maybe isn't fair, but, but you know, and then ultimately, it's the other side of the coin where you've got, you've got family farms in Kentucky for Joel and I, or anywhere, but that's who we work with, where it's it, it looks the assets are higher than the profit, you know, so so it's it's gonna work it's gonna work the other way, for I I my gut instinct is like oh no. Like a lot of these, a lot of, and I don't want to stereotype that like family farms are all these like, you know, asset rich, but income poor kind of places. Some are, I'm sure, but um, we'll have to see. That's, that's the whole thing with this FAFSA and we should keep moving on, I suppose. But we're going to, we're going to have to see it for a year. We don't know what this looks like yet. It's not even ready yet. Like as of, as of today, it's not even open. Like we're, we're relying on you because you've been to all the trainings and and you're on top of it more than anybody I know. So one thing I, I was in, in one of the sessions that I was in that they mentioned was they were talking about Pell Grants and the the comment that the Department of Ed made was with the, the new SAI and, and focusing more on adjusted gross income they were estimating that upwards of 60% of FAFSA filers may qualify for a Pell Grant. To me, that seems high, but is that what you're hearing? I mean, what have you, what have you heard? Before Ed answers, are you saying more people are going to get qualified? More people are going to qualify for at least some Pell money. Okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. But what do you think, Ed? 
Yeah. So from what I've seen and Joel, I hadn't heard the, uh, the percentage put on it. So, but I have seen some data on just raw numbers of students that may, that will probably gain eligibility. So based on a study done by the state higher ed uh, executive officers association, and I've seen others similar, but this one in particular estimated an additional 174,000 students will gain Pell Pell grant eligibility. And that equates to just over $600 million in additional aid. So, so for a lot of students, this, this is going to be a tremendous benefit for them. Now, again, using Chris's words, there are, sorry, Chris, I'm, I'm just going to use them, use them, baby. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> there, there are going to be some losers on this. So, and it does, you know, it really does go back to not factoring in uh, multiple children in college anymore, small business and family farms. They are estimating that approximately 56,000 students that had federal Pell Grant eligibility will lose that eligibility. So, I mean, it's, it is a net gain for sure, but we don't want to minimize the fact that, you know, some, some students are going to lose eligibility on that. I mean, this is way not the same thing, but when we worked on the membership model at NACAC, there were also like with the new, the, the way, the way an entire organization belongs, the net, the net was better. But there were people who ended up paying more. There were institutions who did have to pay more for their memberships. But in the end, membership went from like 14,000 to 26, 27,000, and more people are now involved. But, um, but yeah, I mean, anytime you do something like this, I guess that's the comparison. You've got, it's not going to benefit every individual, which, is, which makes it difficult. What, what's the, can you talk a little bit about, um, how the FAFSA is going to work with the IRS. Oh yeah. I and the data retrieval tool. Yeah. So, so that's a great call out Joel. And, and really that is partially at the crux of the simplification. So when we talked about how the number of questions is going to drop from about a hundred to about 50, this is a big part of it. So people, people often hear about the FAFSA simplification act, but what most people don't know is there was actually kind of a sibling act that went through that was called the Future Act. And a big part of that was the really the, the codification of, of marrying the IRS with the Department of Education for the purposes of FAFSA. So that Future Act authorized the IRS with basically with um, permission, with authorization from the Department of Education and the users to form what was called a direct data exchange between the U.S. Department of Education and the IRS. So so you had mentioned the IRS data retrieval tool. That is effectively gone with the new FAFSA. But this Future Act Direct Data Exchange, or FADDX, it is going to bring all of the, I shouldn't say all, nearly all of the student and family's financial information over directly from the IRS behind the scenes with quite literally the click of a button. Students and families have to consent to allow that information to be pulled over. But once it's pulled over, I believe it's all but three financial questions are taken care of on the FAFSA. So it eliminates almost all all of the financial questions. And if we're also being real, that's where a lot of folks got hung up on. That that was the big intimidation factor because it's asking you to pull out your tax forms, find line X on IRS 1040 form, blah, blah, blah. It was really frustrating, really confusing for students. So, So this was a big part of that FAFSA Simplification Act, the Future Act, the whole FAFSA simplification. This was a huge part of it in bringing that all together. And, and for people who get creeped out by that connection, too bad, so sad. They have to do it, right? So it, it's it's funny you say that, Chris. So technically, the Department of Ed- Education says, no, you don't have to do it. However, if you don't do it, um, you can input manually input your information in there, but no index number will be calculated. So no SAI will be calculated. And if no SAI is calculated, you won't be, be eligible for federal funds. So it's it's kind of, yeah, To again, to use your words, too bad, so sad. Right. Um, it's in your best interest, though, gang, because if we're being real, 
if the IRS already has your data, and I know right. sometimes people, you know, it's it's the specter of Big Brother and things like that. The, they're just gathering information that they they're, they're actually just sharing information that's already the government there already with knows about us. I mean, come Perfect. on. Perfect. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. You're just trading it from one government department to another. Correct. So, yeah. A couple, a couple other smaller things, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, this isn't small because it, it deals with, you know, probably over half the families in, in the country. But can you just give us a few details for divorced families and blended families and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who fills out the FAFSA? Yeah. Who is, or is it different now? Right. I was going to add, can you can you talk about who contributors are in filling out the FAFSA? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll start with contributors first, and then and okay. then uh, Chris Thank will you. will talk about um, okay. the parent, which parent gets added. So contributors really are. I mean, for for all purposes, they are the parents, but it's it's anyone who contributes uh, within the household, uh, within the family. I should say that's another nuance change uh, within the family uh, to the student regarding their financials. So generally speaking, that is going to be a parent, a step parent, a legal guardian, things like that. Uh, so that's really when we talk about a contributor, contributor, it really is the parents. But because of the changes in uh, family dynamic, you know, for a while it was it was uh, parent, step parent, then it was parent one, parent two. Now they've changed it to contributor. So, so you know, I don't want to minimize that change, but we all know that family dynamics are very different from family to family. So they've really just changed that naming convention to to make it, I'm going to say, more inclusive to really kind of get everybody involved. Right. Um, when we start talking about what parent or parents are on the FAFSA, so again, a, a nuance change that on its surface, it sounds like a really big deal. Gang, I'm in the camp that says this probably isn't as big of a deal as as some folks may think it is. Okay. So in the past, the the parent or contributor that would provide their information on the FAFSA was the custodial parent. It, it was pretty straightforward. Who has who has custody? Who has who who really has the child more than fifty percent of the time? And I know that there are always situations where you know, well, it's split parenting, things of that nature, but. At the end of the day, there was there was always a way to kind of figure that out. Sure, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've they've changed that now to it's the parent who provides more than fifty percent of the financial support. So when we start talking about uh, split households, that can sound really intimidating. Uh, you know, who is this? How do we calculate that and so forth? But the reality of it is, is that the Department of Ed encourages families to think about not just about just straight financials. So we're talking about child support paid or something like that. They want you to think about, okay, take in-kind contributions into consideration. Uh, Housing, food, transportation, all of those things. So if you really look at it from that lens, and I know there, there would be some people that would probably disagree with me on this, but I think the number of folks that are going to be impacted by this change will be minimal because for the most part, the, the parent who, who the the child lives with really is probably providing the majority of the financial support, unless in situations where there's just tremendous child support, there's tremendous alimony, things of that nature, you know, that's where, okay, this is, this is where it comes into play. And there may be a flip-flop in terms of what parent is reported on the FAFSA. Right. But, but even in the past, that's how it was supposed to be in the, in the past FAFSAs, right? 50%. Did it, did it say exactly 50% of financial support in the old FAFSA or did the better FAFSA add that word? I can't remember. The better FAFSA did add, did change it to financial. So, so in the past it was the parent with whom the student lived with more than 50% of the time. Just that straight up. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, and that, that that may that may not change a whole lot either. I, I I tend to agree with with you, Ed. So we we mentioned, you know, Chris and I are all about making things easier for students and families. And I, I was sitting here trying to look it up, and I can't find find it. But I, I'm seeing that the FAFSA is going to be available in 11 languages. 
where currently it's only been available in English and Spanish. Um, is this going to work or do you think it's going to glitch? So I feel like that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, of course it's going to glitch. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I, Chris knows me well enough. I am an optimist and you can ask anyone yeah. in my, oh, in yeah. my house. I am an optimist. Um, I, I'm, they tell me it's going to work. I'm inclined to believe them. Do, do, um, now, do we know what languages? I do not have that uh, off okay. the top of my head. I, I apologize. I do not have that. But, but yeah, I think you know. I think one of the things that just kind of overarching, and I know that you know we're dealing with a compressed timeline here with the with the opening in December as opposed to October one. But gang, I think one thing, given all of the changes, and and there was a representative from the Department of Ed that. I think she put it best, especially because there's there's a whole lot of uh, home improvement and HGTV being watched in my house. It was a great analogy that they have tore the FAFSA down to the studs and they are rebuilding it. So with that being said, folks, uh, I just I just really ask uh, your listeners to give the Department of Ed and the financial aid offices, colleges and universities, just a measure of grace and patience when it comes to this, because it's, I mean, it's coming fast and furious. And I know some people would chuckle and say, well, you know, when was, when were all of these acts passed? And that's fair. But when you're rebuilding something like this, basically sure. from the ground up, uh, it's, it's a lot. So, so I guess going back to your original question, Joel, yeah, I think it'll work. Um, you know, time will tell as to if there will be any glitches or anything like that. But I just ask folks, folks to be a little patient, a little understanding. And go from I mean, there. Anyone who's even worked in public education understands how hard it is when your state legislatures make you do something and they don't fund it and you're not prepared for it and you have to make it work. I mean, I've been there seven or eight times periodically through through my career as a counselor. So and our stuff wasn't nearly as hard or complicated as this probably is. We, so we gave a free ACT to, to seniors a few years ago with six weeks notice. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Right. Yeah. right. So anything, anything yeah. can be done. Is, are we, what are we missing that we haven't talked about or we, we haven't asked you? Yeah, so I, I would say there are a couple of things that, again, kind of, kind of below the radar, under the radar things. So for folks to complete the FAFSA, the first thing they need is a federal student aid or FSA ID. So we haven't talked about that. Yep. Um, folks need that that ID in order to even start the FAFSA. So previous years, you could do it concurrently with completing the FAFSA. That is no longer the case. Students and families or parents specifically, they need to, I'm sorry, contributors. Uh, Joel, right. yeah. just for you, contributors. Um, they do need to get that FSA ID ahead of time. Now, even though we don't know exactly when the FAFSA is opening up in December, the FSA ID process has not been Im impacted by any of the changes. So folks could go out and get it today. Uh, and it does take a little bit of time to get it. So you fill out the application and it takes three to five business days because what it's ultimately doing is validating that you're a U.S. citizen or an eligible non-citizen with the Social Security Administration. So it does take a little bit of time. It's not instantaneous. So that's, that's the FSA ID. I think the other one that I would point out, and again, it's, it's relatively minor, but it could have an impact for certain students. The housing question is no longer on the FAFSA. So in the past, it would ask, the FAFSA would ask students, where do you plan on living? On campus, off campus housing, commuting, with, living with mom and or dad. That's gone. And most people might think, well, why is that a big deal? Well, oftentimes financial aid offices will use that question to help shape that financial aid package because they, right. they, something that a piece of that equation is called cost of attendance. And without that housing question, oftentimes folks are left to guess, are they going to live off campus, on campus or, or commute? If they're guessing, the potential is there that it's not accurate. So I always encourage folks now that that's gone, reach out to your admissions office, financial aid office, um, house, student housing office, or quite frankly, all of the above, and just let them know ahead of time, hey, 
this is these are my housing intentions so that way they know and students can get the most accurate aid package right off the bat yeah that would be important for you know like the university of cincinnati right by us where some of our students commute and some of our students live on campus that sort of thing agreed so last question and and you kind of answered it in your last response but um any updates as far as when in December we might see this? Um, I heard the week between Christmas and New Year's, um, which would make sense because by law it has to be open by January 1st. So I'm not really sure that's a that's an out on the limb guess that I heard. But um, any any anything you've heard on your end as far as when this might open? You know, Joel, I, everything we've heard on our end is is largely speculation. So so nothing official has come out. I've heard anything from, to your point, the week before Christmas, the week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, the Department of Ed is keeping this uh, pretty close to the vest. So so we haven't heard anything official. There was a group of, of professional organizations, including uh, NASFA, which I had previously mentioned, as well as NCAN, National College Attainment Network, who had sent a letter to uh, Secretary of Education Cardona urging them to publish a date. And that that letter was sent probably about two, three weeks ago, so mid-October. Uh, but again, no date has been published. I think at this point, it's it's just, I don't want to say a guessing game, but you're right. We, we have a finite window. I would just encourage folks to do what you can to prep ahead of time by getting that FSA ID. Um, by making sure you know which parent is going on on the FAFSA in terms of in terms of uh, parent of record. With that being said, there are some resources out there to help with that. The Department of Education has a great flowchart. They have what they're calling a parent wizard embedded into the FAFSA. But do those things ahead of time so that once once that open date hits, you can get moving, get going, because we know that some of those some of those deadlines may not have shifted when we start talking about schools or states. You know, if anyone can make financial aid and the FAFSA fun, it's the three of us, right? We hope, we hope, because you know this it's 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 sometimes kind of dry, but as as college nerds and as as uh, financial aid nerds. I enjoy it, but I hope, I hope the listeners, I, I'm certain, I'm certain our listeners got a lot out of this conversation. Uh, why don't we catch our breath, take a break and come back with our lenses and words of wisdom. Welcome back to Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Man, that was a ton of information. So the FAFSA may end up being simpler in the end, but for now, there's a lot for professionals to learn about in order to help advise students and parents. Joel? So, you, you know, Chris, I, I really hope the ultimate goal of all of this truly comes to fruition. Right. Um, that the, the financial aid process becomes simpler and clearer for everyone. Uh, that completing the application is easier and less stressful, and that the financial aid uh, award letters and explanations hopefully will subsequently become clearer and more concise. I think that's a good way to put that. So let's let's get into our various lenses for today's episode. So if you're an independent or a school counselor, uh, if you have not already started, You've got a lot of work to do and to continue to do this fall. Um, I would suggest a lot of reading, a lot of watching webinars, going to presentations, listening to this episode, anything that will get you more knowledgeable about the better FAFSA. Um, students and parents probably are going to have a lot of questions. Um, I would anticipate questions, especially from households who have accessed the previous version. Um, learn as much as you can, reach out to those in the, in the know for questions that you can't answer. Um, 
and then this last part, I'm going to change a little bit. Um, you know, it's going to feel a little uncomfortable for us as school counselors. Um, I was in a classroom yesterday talking to a group of seniors about financial aid, and we were talking about the FAFSA. And, and I mentioned that, you know, I, it's, it's a little frustrating for me. I like to provide information, solid information to students. And right now I can't do that. Okay. And, and that just, it, this is my issue, but it, it just annoys me to not be able to do that for my kids. So just be patient. There's probably going to be a little bit of, of glitching on the computer system. Anything new there always is. Uh, but we're all going to get there. Um, we're all going to get through it. And just remember the ultimate goal is to help our kids and help our families. So just model model patience and understanding for your, your students and parents. If you're at a university, I guess, I guess the first thing you'll have to do is practical, which is, which is process this information as quickly as possible and get the financial aid packages out back on the timelines you used to used to have when the FAFSA didn't open until January 1st. So you, you all are back on a, back on an old, old calendar for a year here. Um, and, and I couldn't think of a ton to say for colleges here, I, except we say the same things to you all the time, which is, which is keep your process as easy and standardized as possible and be transparent in what you do. So no matter what the topic, we always feel like those two items are important for colleges to always remember. And finally, it's to add on top of that, like you have a lot of power as a college, like, like the things you say and do influence families and you can either make their lives better or you can make them super nervous or you can frustrate them or you can make life easier for them. But you have a lot of power as, as a college and just bear that in mind as you, as you make your decisions or you lobby for the things with higher ups in your in institutions that you need to, that you need to talk to. Joel? If you're, if you're a parent. So in many episodes, our advice to parents is one of support and of letting your child somewhat take the lead in the admissions process. Okay, for this episode, throw that out. <laughs> All right, one, we're talking about money here, and two, this is a major change we've been discussing. Um, so as a parent, what can you do? You know, if this is your first child going to college, Obviously, you know, you haven't seen the old FAFSA, so it's all about just learning about this better FAFSA, talking with your school counselor, attending information nights, finding information, reading articles, talking to people on the on the college side of things, uh, just just getting yourself knowledgeable. Um, if this is not your first child in college, you're going to have to take some of what you thought you knew about the FAFSA and delete um, and then follow the steps as before to learn about the better FAFSA. Um, come up with a game plan as a family, all right? Who's who's collecting the information? Who's completing the FAFSA? Get those um, FSA IDs done in advance, like Ed recommended. Um, and like Chris said, the processing time for colleges is gonna be quicker than normal this year. So when it opens, you wanna be ready to, to have everything in place so you can fill that FAFSA out first thing. If you're a student, I don't have a lot here, but here you go. You got to stay educated, watch a webinar, perhaps learn the jargon, the vocabulary, learn the vocabulary in this. Seek out assistance. Talk to your parents. That's an important one because this is a money thing, as, as Joel just said. And then get the FAFSA filled out as quickly as possible. So actually do the FAFSA when it becomes available. And with that... It's time to wind down this episode where we will finish up, as always, with Chris's word of wisdom. Chris, what's the word today? I've, I've, I've well, one, I struggled with this one. I almost asked you to do your first one because I couldn't, I couldn't really think of something. But I, I've been asked on occasion, especially at this stage of my career, like, what are, like, what are you proud of? Like, what are your, what are, what are your accomplishments? And I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have done a lot, and you know, I get a Vita that runs several pages, that sort of thing. But I truly more than I ever would have thought with NACAC board and all that, all that kind of stuff. But what I'm really actually proud of, aside aside from aside from like things I've done with students where I know my influence has been good, it's just it's my network. Like I find myself caring a whole lot 
less and less about what I've done and more just about the relationships I have. Like, I think professionally, honestly, Joel, and Ed, like, I think it's my most valuable asset is just my, my network of people. But it's personally profoundly meaningful to, to me. So when I, when I think about colleges, I think about, I think about Jack, Lee, Jackie, Kent, John, Tamara, Fiona, Raymond, Todd, Derek. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of others. And Joel warned me I'd forget people when I mentioned names, but, and I'm sure I do, but like, I don't, when I think of a particular college, I don't think, oh my gosh, it's so cool that I've got a friend here. Like, I, I just, I don't even, like, I just think these are my friends. Like, these are, these are the people. When I, at, at, at NACAC, it's David, Joyce, Angel, and John, God rest his soul. Uh, and many, many others at, at NACAC, Sally Mae, it's Joe and Ed. I don't, I don't, I don't think like, oh man, I, if I need some, if I need something, it's no, it's, it's Joe and Ed at, at, at Kentucky ACAC, the list is way, way too long, but it starts with you and then Johnny, Danny, Derry, Donna, Mike, Billy, Allie, Diane, Moore, tons and tons of people, but that's, and so, so. Fine, I name dropped all these people who who I really care for a lot, and and where's where's the wisdom in it? I guess to me, it's just that people matter more than anything, and it's it's important for us to remember that with with whatever we're doing. Yep, this is a people business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is, and so's life. So remember, you can always listen to Get Schooled on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it this week at at GetSchooled3, at AskMRReeves, and at TheMR4D. And you can find us on the internet at AskMrReeves.com slash GetSchooled. All right, Joel, tell us about our next episode. For the next episode... And I think this really is the next episode, listeners. We're going to be looking at QuestBridge. Uh, QuestBridge is a national scholarship program for high-achieving students uh, with financial need. And so we want to know, what is it? What's this thing called a match? And what do we need to know about uh, QuestBridge in order to help our students? So that'll be our topic next time right here on Get Schooled by Reeves and Ford. Awesome. Woo. Look at that. Put it in the can. Done. <laughs>